Welcome to the Rocks and Roots podcast. Um, I am doing a solo interview tonight with a very special guest uh, who combines several of our passion, passions, running, hiking, and books. So Ken Posner is an ultra marathoner, hiker, and author. He has completed 100 marathons and ultra marathons mixed in there. He's done the Adirondack 46, the Catskills Grid, for those of you who are unfamiliar, that's 35 peaks each month for 12 months for a total of 420 summits. Um, he's hiked the Long Path in New York and the John Muir Trail. Uh, Ken has also completed 51 races barefoot, including 13 marathons and ultra marathons. He's completed the Catskills 35 barefoot and the Adirondacks 46 barefoot, which is just absolutely stunning to me. Um, Ken was also an airborne ranger, and as if that wasn't enough, you are also an author. Welcome, sir. Thank you, uh, Cranky. Delighted to be here. Fantastic. So I was absolutely thrilled when you reached out to us and looking over your resume, I was absolutely blown away. You've done so many things in just one lifetime. That would be enough for five lifetimes of stuff if we tried to cram that in. So um, let's start with the very basics. When did you get into this stuff? Hiking, the outdoors. Uh, when did it start for you? Well, you know, I was thinking about that, and when I was six, my grandpa Roy took me by the hand, and we walked out into the backyard. He lived in Dayton, Ohio, and there was a grove of trees, and he said, Ken, this is nature. And being a skeptical little kid, I was like, why are you telling me this? I didn't say that out loud, <laughs> um, but so I remember that. You know, by the way, I'm a grandpa now, so I, I, that gets me thinking okay, what's my obligation to, the, to my grandson and others? So the next thing I remember when I was 12, the family went on vacation to New Hampshire, and we just walked up Mount Jefferson, and we would be considered today totally unprepared, <laughs> you know, hikers. I, we were in blue jeans. We did, I don't know if we even had food or water. Uh, my dad just raced ahead thinking about things, and my mom was freaking out about the fog, and the kids, we just, we didn't even know it was a 5,000-foot mountain or whatever it is. Um, so those were, I guess, formative memories anyhow. By the time I got to college, for whatever reason, I knew I had to do more of this. I signed up for Outward Bound. Okay. And then I joined the Army because soldiers are out in the field, and that was incredibly alluring to me. Fantastic. So Mount Jefferson, how old were you again at, when you did Mount Jefferson? Um, probably about 12. That's awesome. Absolutely awesome. So and so, this has been a absolute lifelong passion for you, um, that you have turned into something that is absolutely incredible. And then, as if all of that wasn't enough, you decided to get into barefoot hiking, running. Um, what made you decide to start ditching the shoes? Well, usually people see me and they're like, "Did you read?" Chris McDougall's bestseller, Born to Run. And I was like, yeah. So I guess I read it, and I was the only person who didn't get the memo that it's just an idea. You weren't actually <laughs> supposed to go out and do it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I read it. So, and by the way, that's the number one running bestseller of all time based on Amazon. And um, when I read it, I was like, you know, I get the point. Maybe barefoot or running is more natural, and maybe more a more natural gait will make you more resilient in the face of overuse injury risk or misalignment so i started it just for purely pragmatic reasons and i went out and I, I ran 100 miles 100 miles 100 feet <laughs> i ran 100 feet barefoot on a trail and i was like huh that was different but that was as far as i went initially what i did is i went into minimalist shoes okay and i spent about five years transitioning from conventional to minimalist, to ultra-minimalist, you know, eventually the sandals and the Vibram Five Fingers. And um, that was that was um, great fun because it took away, for me anyhow, it took away the sense of running as pounding. Yeah. 
in turn running more into um, tapping, tapping along lightly. Um, so I loved my minimalist shoes, and, and that was it. So, But after about five years, I went out for another barefoot run, um, and I did about a mile. It was in New York City, you know, in Central Park. I was very self-conscious. <laughs> I bet. It felt incredibly awkward, and got a little bit scratched up, and I was like, meh. Uh, but then the next morning when I woke up, my feet were like, tingling they it was the sensations and they wanted more okay <laughs> they were like more so that's when i went sort of crazy and went almost full-time barefoot now i'm pretty much 100 percent barefoot unless there's you know cold or ice it's too cold or there's ice or deep snow yeah, I was going to say for your grid, um, I would imagine in January, February, March, you are not barefoot in six feet of snow. Um, <laughs> it's really fascinating to hear you say that because athletic companies are finally starting to get with the program for decades. Um, you know, I'm going to call some people out, but Nike and all of these companies have been destroying our feet with elevated right. heels and not enough toe box and companies like ultra um and some brooks and some of the others are finally starting to get with the program and now everybody does wide toe box everybody does zero drop and a decade ago that you you didn't hear that so the the trend is moving more towards a natural um what your body naturally wants to do except for hoka yes they they are doing the opposite <laughs> so but by the way you know as runners we're in different tribes and it doesn't you know you can't ever be friends with somebody who has a different kind of shoe or has a different <laughs> <Yes>. kind of diet <laughs> but uh so it's nice to have choices i know people love their hokas obviously a lot of people wear them but i guess part of the barefoot interest for me is also this concern that in the modern world, technology is such a fabulous tool, but sometimes we have too much technology. Yep. And when you have the technology, you're, there's going to be a cost. There's always going to be a cost, and you're going to potentially lose some of what you had in a more natural activity. And, hey, when I go to work, I use technology. My, the company where I work, we invest in technology when there's a cost-benefit trade-off. But in my personal life, it's, you know, Unless I'm trying to protect myself against something really hazardous, I want less technology. I want yes. more direct engagement with the natural world. I want to expose myself and just have that connection and not be sheltered, you know, behind layers and layers and layers of technology. That's my sort of philosophy, anyhow. I I like it. Um, I'm not... We are not quite at your level. I mean, we're still using Ultra Lone Peaks, and when I do road races, I'm using my Ultra Torrens. But, um, yeah, I completely agree with you about the modern world and the detriment of technology. I mean, it, it's allowing us to talk right now, yep, but sure. we've also seen, you know, the negative effects on society at large. So, last barefoot question um when you do use shoes in the in the dead of winter when there's ice and snow what do you use so i've got a pair of boots they're called they're limbs yep so they're zero drop um and wide toe box by the way if you read earl uh, i think i'm getting his name right earl schaefer who's the first yep. fellow to through hike the appalachian trail yep. he had i think army boots but he went to a cobbler he had the heel cut off that I did not know that. That's fascinating. Yeah. So, so th that's you know. So it's uh, zero drop uh, hiking boots. And what else do I wear? Um, I wear Tadivos, which are super lightweight, like moccasins. And I've worn zero shoes and enjoy them, except they they always fall apart on me. Yes. Yeah. Ultras <laughs> are notorious for that. Um, yeah. yeah. I have not person. I've read about Earl Schaefer. I have not read his book. He's a really fascinating fascinating story just literally yep. walking off his world war ii trauma yep for so. sure all right um <clears throat> so what is absolutely amazing 
is that you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you currently hold the record for a Badwater double. So for those listeners who are not familiar with what that is, um, so the Badwater race starts 282 feet below sea level in the Badwater Basin in the Death Valley, and it ends at 8,360 feet just shy of Mount Whitney. Um, so a double is doing that, going out, and then coming back. And do you still hold the record for that? Well, as as far as I know, I do. You know, it's considered a courtesy if you're going to go out and try to break somebody's record that you would at least let them know. Yes. Um, the, um, the, the one uh, correction for the double, it's the traditional route. So it starts in the basin and it goes all the way to the summit of Whitney. Oh, wow. That I did so not. Okay. So an extra... Eleven miles and uh, six thousand feet, and then all the way back. So that's I did huge. that as a few years ago. Now I'm, I'm not in, <laughs> not going to be doing that again anytime soon. But that was a great trip. That was my best run ever. I would imagine uh, that 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 worked out extremely well. It was a great plan. A tremendous crew that supported me, um, and I was in the peak condition of my life, age fifty one. So as you get a little bit older, um, you know, not all of us are going to do that as we get older, but it was a great experience for sure. That gives me hope. Um, if I know that for you've sure. been following the podcast to kind of get caught up before our interview and Tumbles and I, it was our longest trail run ever, but we did bonk a 50K. We only only did 20 Miles, so it gives me hope that I'm only 40 and I could be doing this for another 20 to 30 years minimum. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. When when I turned 40, I remembered a story uh, from when I was a kid and I went to a karate camp mm-hmm. and everybody was like, see that guy over there? He just turned 40. <laughs> he ran 40 miles for his 40th birthday. So when I was like 39 and a half, I woke up one day and I was like, uh-oh, I got to do that too. And that was the start of my ultra running. Okay. Now, when I turned 40, I didn't do it. And I didn't even do it when I was 41. But I think by the time I was 42, I started to hear about ultra marathons and run, going out and running 40 miles on my own just seemed too boring and painful. But when I discovered the ultra races in beautiful locations in the mountains, etc., that's what really got me hooked. And that's when I crossed that boundary. Outstanding. So what was your time for Badwater? So I ran the race twice, and my times were very mediocre, middle of the pack. For the double, oh, I should know this, but I want to say around 94 hours. Okay. So just short of four days. That's very, very impressive. Um. So what made you decide to do it twice? Because like once and finishing it would be the accomplishment of a lifetime, but you went back for more. Well, I ran the race the, the, the first time. Badwater was just, just became a huge dream and obsession for me. When I first got into trail running, I started to hear about ultramarathons. I heard about Badwater, and it just seemed so crazy to be running in the heat uh, for such long distances. But I think, you know, the, the coolest goals... They seem impossible, but you start to think about clues and maybe ways that you could do them. So that's what's exciting. Maybe I could do that. And so for Badwater, I've always been pretty good in in the heat. When I was in the Army, people would say, hey, Ken, you're not not even sweating. And of course I was, but I I didn't sweat that much. I'm thin and I I seem to be efficient in dealing with the heat. The cold, I hate the cold. Okay. (laughs) So I never went out to do Arrowhead, that's for sure. Um, the, uh, um, but, you know, Badwater was a huge dream. I was very fortunate to, to be able to have Lisa smith Batchin as my coach. She was called the queen of Badwater, and I think she's run it nine times. She's a tremendous coach. Her outfit is called Dream Chasers. And so she gave me the training plan, and she was with me out there when I was uh, on the run. So that was an amazing experience for me and then i went back two years later because my daughter she said dad why don't you run bad water again so that she could come along and be on the crew oh that's great so you have to if a daughter or, or son asks you have to do something like that plus 
it was so exciting to be out in Death Valley again. And then the double, I don't know, I had this intuition. I think a lot of the excitement in these sports just comes from listening to your body. Mm -hmm. And your body will send you clues and will whisper to you and it'll say, yeah, I think we could do that. So I went out to to do the double and see if I could break the record. I, I had set a record for the long path the year before, so the next year I had to have another you know, adventurous goal, so that was the Badwater double. That's, like I said, that is absolutely incredible. Um, if you are willing, we would love to have you back uh, to dissect more of that and go into your training plan and how you deal with the heat and all sorts of questions, but... Um, for this particular interview, we wanted to discuss some more local stuff. So I mentioned in the intro that you um, completed your Catskills grid. Um, so when did you do that? And by the way, uh, Cranky, uh, with respect to the bad word, I'd be glad to come back. And just to cut to the chase, I've got a collection of funny sauna stories. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's part of how you prepare for something like that. So we'll we'll do that some other time. So you were asking about the grid, and I think you were asking when did I uh, finish the grid? Yes. Yeah, December 2018. Okay. And did you do it in, I'm assuming that was not in a single year. I'm assuming that was over more than a year, or were you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and so I think I found out about the grid in 2015. 15, if I recall properly. And I was out on the trails uh, doing something, and I ran into a guy named Mike Sudi. And if you haven't heard of Mike Sudi, he is the most talented Catskills trail runner ever. Um, and uh, he was completing his grid right at that moment. And he had oh, a wow. banner on his backpack that said 35 times 12 equals 420. So that's <laughs> when I first heard about it. And um, so being an accountant, among other things, I went back to my laptop and I, I couldn't resist filling out a matrix. And I had been doing a lot in the Catskills. So I was actually I already had like 100 plus peaks. So I was already 25% of the way to the end. And I was like, well, I'm almost there. <laughs> I there have 300 more to do. So for me, with a job and a family, it was a multi-year project. Yeah. There are some people who will do a grid in one year, but I don't know. It was a huge undertaking. In fact, I took a year off from work in 2018 to finish it. Oh, wow. Uh, because it was so demanding, at least for me. Uh, and I was just trying to rush through it and get it done as quickly as possible because I was just so passionate about, you know, seeing the mountains in every month and also learning about myself as I went out, you know, during the summer, which I love, and during the winter, which I don't. So it was just a tremendous learning experience. Um, so you kind of mentioned your strategy. Did you have a favorite peak? Well, I always mention Picamoose because it's the yes. southernmost and a lot of things started Picamoose, but I love them all, right? Because you get to know them. Yep. Um, yeah, we've done about, I think it's like 25. So we are almost done. Uh, we <laughs> left all of the bushwhacks until right. the end. So that is not really our thing. That's not going to be particularly fun, but we will get it done eventually. Well, I'll tell you what. I'd be delighted if you wanted me to take you up on uh, one of the bushwhacks because I know them all at this point pretty well. Oh, that would be um, great. Yeah, that would – well, think about that. And, and Now that it's in the summer, not, it's not as much fun in the winter yeah. uh, for me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I want to get back into winter hiking. Uh, we did... Uh, I can't remember the peak now. Um, but we did a couple in the Adirondacks in the dead of winter with snowshoes. Oh. And I absolutely... I loved it. We weren't able to do that this year. But I want to get back into that next season. Um, so I... In particular, I don't mind the cold. So... Um, all right, so did you have, I know you said you like them all, but is there one that is kind of towards the bottom of your liking all of them? Um, you know, I, um, I mean, Catterskill, maybe Catterskill High Peak, um, takes a little way, a little ways to get there. Um, 
It's I, I love them all, but since you asked, that's the one that came to mind. Okay. I couldn't even come up with a good reason, uh, except we went up at well, I went up with a friend once at night with ice, and we couldn't find the trail, and mm. we kept slip our slipping off you know cliffs and things like that. It was a bit of a battle <laughs> to get up there, so I, that that sticks in my mind. But those, when things don't quite right, go right. But when you are able to pull it out and finish it, that gives that sense of accomplishment even more meaning. Sure. So um, even a bad hike, if you complete it, well done. What did you think of um, Devil's Path? So did you do, when you tackled Devil's Path, did you just do it end to end in one shot? How did you handle that? Well, I actually did a, a Devil's Path double. I was the first person to record a time for the Devil's Path double, so for a little while I had the record. Now, I just mentioned Mike Sudi being a super talented uh, Catskills trail runner, so he came along and beat my time pretty easily. <laughs> uh, but I, um, So I did the Devil's Path that way, but otherwise I've just picked off the, you know, the individual mountain. Sometimes it was twin... Uh, and plateau and sugarloaf and sometimes it was just Indian head by itself. Okay. And, and you know, as you do the grid and you start, you don't necessarily want to do the same mountain the same way every time. So once I had a lot of fun starting on the southern side and coming up to me uh, up to sugarloaf, but I bushwhacked. Oh wow! Sugarloaf from the south, and and that was an interesting climb. It was a steep ridge at places. Um, but just a gorgeous ridge. And, you know, in the fall, this is in the fall. In the fall, as you know, you walk on those ridges yep. and you see space out to the sides and you realize how narrow the ridges are in some places. It's so much fun to, to ridge walk. Yes. And so that was that made that, a, a, you know, an extra special um, experience. Yeah, that is one of my favorite things about the Cat, Catskills is those escarpments. Like you do, um, you know, this climb. And then just once you get to those plateaus, absolutely incredible. It, it's And if you, in the winter, it's like literally walking through Christmas. Like if Christmas was personified, right. there you go. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> Devil's Path Double, that that's amazing. How long did it take? It took me, I want to say, a little bit under 24 hours. Okay. Did so you, it wasn't a particularly fast time. You know, uh, the records are down around, one-way records are down around five hours or something yes. like that. So um, uh, that's pretty impressive. So I, I mostly power hiked it, I would say. Okay. Did you sleep at all or just that was uh, just straight through? Just straight through. Nice. And by, by the way, I felt much better on the way out than on the way back. Yeah. On the way I, back, I was wobbling in my my watch i'm one of the few people i shouldn't say this but i use the sunto but uh the um on the way back my watch started going crazy and according to my gpx record it was 24 miles out and like 36 back <laughs> so i have a feeling the powers of uh darkness maybe were toying with me and maybe trying to teach a foolish runner a little bit of of about a lesson about respecting you know <laughs> not rushing through uh the devil's personal domain as right. it was believed to be yeah it sounds like you had trouble connecting with the satellites on the way back um <laughs> so all right wow that that is very very impressive i would not want to tackle some of those climbs in the dark so more power to you man well, one of the th things you can do is get uh, there. There are some headlamps that will dial up with, to a thousand lumens, and those yes. can be helpful. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, how many of the grid did you do barefoot? So, since since you were curious about that, I went back to my records and counted them up. So the answer is two hundred and four. Wow! So um, almost half. Yep, that's really cool. All right, and then, um, so keeping on the subject of the Catskills, you also did the Catskills 9, which again, for those who don't know, but you should, because we interviewed Greg Calabrese, and he <laughs> talked about this. The Catskills 9 is a 22-mile loop, including Table, Peekamoose, Lone, Rocky, Balsam Cap, Friday, Cornell, 
Wittenberg and Slide Mountains. <clears throat> um, it's commonly done as an overnight. Did you do it as an overnight, or did you do it as a point-to-point -point one day? Well, I've done it multiple times. The first time I went out to run it, and um, I mentioned Mike Sudi a couple of times yep. already. He has the record, which is just blazingly fast. So I went out, uh, to, you know, and I said, I'm going to beat his record. And I very quickly <laughs> discovered that was not going to happen. I just, the most amazing thing, he, he knows his way through the thickets. Okay. And when I went out that first time, I just got hung up and tangled in all the balsam uh, fur and, and spruce. Uh, so I did it uh, during the day. I did it once at night. I've done it in the winter. The most interesting way I've done it, though, which I did a couple of years ago with my friend Cal Ghosh, we did, we did it in a format that we called the Diogenes Challenge. And Diogenes was an ancient Greek philosopher, and to make a long story short, he preached simplicity. So he's like thorough, but on steroids. So our Diogenes Challenge, and yeah, we, we started Friday night, and we went up over Slide and then camped between Slide and Cornell which is, the, I think, the same place that Greg said he had camped. It's a logical place to camp. Yep. Um, so we went uh, barefoot and carrying no food or water or bug spray. Okay. Um, and uh, we also uh, used natural navigation. So we, we had compass maps and GPS, but in our packs. So we didn't use them right. during the hike. So what land, what specific landmarks did you use in your natural navigation? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. Natural navigation is a tremendous uh, skill to practice because it teaches you to observe the lay of the land instead of just, you know, keeping your eye on the compass needle or keeping your eye on the blue dot on the, on the GPS screen. Um, so the, you know, the first leg coming from uh, Cornell towards Friday, we kept the big gulf of Peekamoose Valley to our left, and uh, the sun was in the east uh and that's all we re really needed to do to get to Friday, because the Friday Ridge is pretty narrow, and you can stay on the ridge top. From Friday to Balsam Camp, uh, there's a wonderful social trail. It's a very clear and easy to follow. So that was very straightforward. From Balsam Camp to Rocky, um, <laughs> if there is a social trail, I've never found it. That's getting more tangled, more difficult. And uh, there it was, again, trying to keep, I think it was at this point, more about using the sun, keeping the sun uh, to the front, being in the south. And then the challenge is you've got to turn, I think it's to the, I'm going to get my directions mixed up, I think you've got to turn to the west to get to either Rocky or Lone. And I remember Cal was going, Ken, push right, push right, because I was starting to curl back uphill. And then Cal, and you get, see, you get little clues. You'll get a window in the foliage and you can see a peak. It's like okay. four inches, and that's your clue, and you have to remember that and stay oriented until the next time. And we saw table, or maybe it was loan, and then we lost it, and I was heading uphill, I thought, to table, and Cal was like, Ken, look behind you. <laughs> and there it was. <laughs> okay. Um, so doing it with multiple people is great because, yes. you know, more eyes, more minds thinking yep. about the clues. You study the map beforehand, and you bring the GPS, so if you get totally turned around, uh, then you you know, you know, pull it out and you <laughs> don't have to spend the night out there. But it's a great it's a great exercise. I've gone out, and you know, sometimes the natural navigation does not work. Like if it's raining and you're like, well, I think it's a little brighter <laughs> in that direction, so that's got to be east. Uh, but you start to learn important principles, like you know, your feet are going to naturally take you uphill, which can be good or bad. And downhill is where you have to be very careful because you could go in any direction. So you start to learn little clues like that. So what sections of that are bushwhacks where there are no trails? Well, from Cornell to Friday, from Friday to Balsam, Friday to Balsam Camp, social trail. From yeah. Balsam Camp to uh, Rocky, nothing that I've ever seen. From Rocky to Lone, nothing that I've ever seen. But then from Lone to Table, again, there's a pretty well-established social trail there. Okay. By, by the way, I'm, I'm, I usually came from the other direction. I think it took me six trips before I finally found the social trail uh, from Table to Lone. Because I had always just turned a little bit 
downhill a little bit too early and you learn to you learn like to perceive the light and when the light is sort of balanced on either side then you're on the crest of the ridge okay and but only then and if you start to peel downhill a little bit too soon you'll go <laughs> straight into the valley so so you learn cool little things like that about how to just to be aware of your surroundings uh, that over time are helpful so no food or water um so how exactly does that part of it work like are you looking for stuff like forage stuff out there or are you just like carving up the night before like i've never heard of that well, so, um, I mean, you just don't eat, so yeah. you get a little hungry. But, you know, you've probably heard of intermittent fasting. Yes. So it's just the same principle. The goal is to teach your body to be efficient at burning fat so that you're not dependent on car excessive carbs or right. sugary snacks all the time, which is a challenge for modern nutrition, it, it would appear. Um, so, so that's it. Now, what I've found is... Um, if I'm moving through the forest, I don't get all that hungry. If I'm working in front of a computer and skip meals, that's a little bit more challenging. Yep. Because okay. my stomach is like, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> you know, the, and when you're out... The body just shuts down when you're sitting in front of a computer. But when you're moving and active... And, you know, people... If you go back, people in the old days didn't have all the snacks. They didn't have mm -hmm. refrigerators. They sometimes went days or longer without food. All right. Yeah. No, it makes sense. And when you are out there, your mind is occupied. Uh, you've got, you know, constant stimulus coming at you when you're sitting in front of a computer. You're, you're bored. And what do we do when we're bored? We eat. And I, that's a huge problem in, uh, you know, modern, yeah. in modernity. So, and then what about the lack of water? I know for me, I'm constantly, because I have, you know, the camelback and I'm constantly sipping. So is that something that you had to train for or how did that part of it work? Well, you know, uh, back to Diogenes, who was like thorough on steroids. Yeah. So he had four possessions total, a cloak, a staff, a satchel, and a drinking vase. So ultra minimalist, right? And one day he saw a child drinking from a stream with cupped hands. So he threw away the drinking vase. He's like, that's superfluous. I don't think that. So that, that's the spirit of what we were doing. But there's water on the course, depending on the time of year. So I've been out there in, you know, August, September, October, totally bone dry. But there's a spring on, right below the summit of Slide. Um, and then there's a seep coming down. Uh, it's called Ralph's Ramp coming down from Friday. So okay. there's a seep there. And there is a little bit of a spring. And I forget whether it's the base of rocky i think it's the base of rocky but i have to it, it's you can see it on the map so there are little spots of water but we were out there in june it was pretty cool i don't think either of us were particularly thirsty um i uh, during the day i am very very impressed um and it's interesting that you mentioned that because if you think about it that water if you're getting a spring or if you're getting a seep that water is moving through the mountains, it is filtered, it is probably better than the water that comes out of your tap, but we are so trained, run everything through your Sawyer, run everything through your Sawyer, which is absolutely great. Sawyer is amazing. But um, you are right, like that water, if you just drank it pure, and, not that and I recommend, I'm not way, recommending that. But full disclosure, I brought my Sawyer filter with me, and I always use it in the Catskills, but... Um, I don't know. I've read, for example, in the Sierra, rangers have gone out and tested the water, and they're like, you know, there's really no giardia yeah. out here. So yeah. sometimes, in, you know, we have the technology, and we become fearful, and therefore we rely on the technology without really knowing what's going on. And, you know, to me, and by the way, a filter is not necessarily a bad idea, because there can be giardia. Yep. You know, a porcupine can go to the bathroom <laughs> in the stream um, right above you. Um but what I notice is bug spray. So in the Catskills, yeah, there's a couple weeks in May when the black flies are out. Yes. And I'll use a few drops. Uh, by the way, Cal won't use bug spray ever. Uh, he's tougher than I am. But otherwise, I almost never use bug spray in the Catskills. There really aren't that many biting uh, bugs that, 
in the other times of year. And if you get a one or two bites, it's it's not like you know maybe the Adirondacks are different. <laughs> there's yes. a tougher insect population. Or if you were on the Mississippi or in Alaska, there's other places where you have to make a judgment about how much you want to expose yourself to. But in Catskills, it's really pretty benign. But yet you'll see people sometimes even wearing you know head nets, and you're like, dude, you don't really need that. But so what are your thoughts? Let me pick your brain. What are your thoughts on, and I know in some spots along the Appalachian Trail, like New Jersey, um, you know, it might be essential, but what are your thoughts on things like permethrin and like treating for, for ticks and stuff like that, which is not a cat skills issue really, but I'm just picking your brain. Yeah. So, um, and there aren't a lot of ticks in the cat skills. I've seen two ticks in the Catskills, <laughs> all my climbs, and I think they were both dog ticks. Um, but I, I live in the Schwangunk area. Okay. And there's some places I go, so this is tick central. Yes. I've got an unconventional view, so I'm not telling anybody <laughs> what to do, because Lyme can be a serious disease, but I don't do any uh, chemicals or any insect repellent at all. What I do is just wear as little clothing as possible. Uh, <laughs> now, I'll wear shorts, right? Um but so my first line of defense is paying attention. Yes. And you get the little tickle and yep. you're like, Oh, hello. And, and, but I tell you what, you, you just, if you rely on the chemicals, I think it's very dangerous because one of them could jump onto your backpack or they love to get up like inside your pants Yes. or between layers of fabric. And then you come indoors and you wake up in the middle of the night and there's a little tickle and you're like, why, hello, I don't remember inviting you into my bed <laughs> or, or my armchair, but they'll get in. And so the key is when you feel the tickle, you need to react. And so it's mental, um, it's vigilance, um, and I, I just don't think the, the chemicals are strong enough to give you perfect protection. I was down in Texas on a business trip sitting in a board meeting and I got up and ran out <laughs> and went straight to the bathroom and took off my pants. And there was a little dude that had flown down, you know, from New York with me cause they'll just get into your stuff. Wow. And we had a dog and so they'll come in on the animals yep. and you've got to assume they're everywhere all the time. I always do, especially, um, on the AT coming back from an AT trip, New Jersey, New York, I always bring my wife into the bathroom be like, all right, I'm going to strip down. We're going to check. Yeah. Um, that, that's smart. Yeah. Every, every, that, that's smart. And you have time because it takes them, they'll crawl around for a while before they bite and it takes them time between biting and the possibility that they would inject something into you that would be toxic, you know, harmful to you. Right. So you have time, but you can't waste the time. You have to pay attention. That's the best I can think of. Yeah. In this environment. Agreed. Um, so I have to ask, and I don't have the notes in front of me, but the, crash along um the catskills nine uh the bomber have you seen it have you ventured down off trail to see it no but i'll tell you who can take you straight to it because he found it okay and that's a fellow named ralph rindak okay and ralph is a catskills veteran um and um you were talking with uh, greg about bears too ralph is a bear whisperer so he, he, I don't know that he, he might say I'm exaggerating, but I believe he can call bears. They wander into his backyard and he takes videos of them and they're just like waving at him. <laughs> I've seen a bunch of bears in the Catskills over the years, but Ralph, I think has a magic touch. And, um, but he's, when he was a kid, he was 14 years old. He grew up on Moonhall road and he heard about the bomber and that's what kids did back in those yeah. days in the summer. They just went up into the mountains and he got his friends together and, they uh, they found it. That's okay. I will try to reach out. That's awesome. Yeah, he would have some super interesting stories uh, to tell you, including about Cave Dog, who was another you know fantastic trail runner who came out to the Catskills. Um, so Ralph is definitely an interesting guy to talk to. You'd, you'd love him. Awesome. I will reach out because that sounds amazing, and that's one of the things that I want to do. There's a couple crash sites that i want to find eventually um in the adirondacks and then the catskills so as if all of the things we've talked about aren't enough for your resume you are a board member of the new jersey new york trail conference 
Um, so before we really get into that, um, I just want to say your maps are fantastic. I don't know how directly involved you are with producing those <laughs> maps, but um, they have been a very, very valuable resource hiking in the New York, New Jersey area. So by the way, um, the cartographer at the New York, New Jersey Trail Conference, his name is Jeremy Apgar. Okay. And he's a one-man show, so he's done all those maps. Volunteers help. They'll point out things to him. The beautiful thing about those maps, because there are alternatives out there like all trails, but Jeremy goes through, and these maps are very carefully curated to make them accurate and up-to-date, so they're not necessarily crowdsourced like an all-trails map. So, yeah, the New, the New York New Jersey Trail Conference, the, you know, I'm on the board. The board's job is just to make sure the organization accomplishes its, its mission. And our mission is to connect people with nature by building and maintaining public hiking trails. Uh, we've got a, a staff, a super staff, um, uh, led by Josh Howard, the executive director, about 30 staff members, super dedicated and committed and enthusiastic, just great people. But then the real um, force of the trail conference is our army of volunteers. We have over 2,000 volunteers, and we call them our superheroes because they're donating their time. They're going out on the trails. They're clipping back the vegetation. You know, that there would be no trails if you didn't cut back the vegetation, yes. particularly in the Schweinguks. And in some cases, we have really experienced expert volunteers, and they build trails. Or they'll put in play, they'll move the rocks around and put in place the stone steps or improve the drainage, which is always a challenge. Um, and we do a few other things. We have a, a team that fights invasive, uh, alien invasive plants. Uh, we, we put out the maps and in, in, uh, in in books. And we also have a very small uh, fund that acquires land. So we'll buy small parcels where we want to take an important trail like the Long Path and move it off the road. Okay. Or maybe it's a key parcel and then we can bring in other, you know, bigger organizations to buy more land and create a state, a state forest. So that's something else we do that, um, but, but the main mission is to make those trails. We we're responsible for over 2000 miles of trails in New York and New Jersey, pretty much most of the public trails. Yes. That you'd be familiar with. Yep. Um, so years ago, this has got to be maybe 12, 15 years ago. Um, you were mentioning volunteers. I have another friend that I hike with and we, I don't even remember what trail it was, but we were, we were out there, we were having a blast. Um, and we came across some volunteers and we were inspired and we stopped our hiking for about half an hour. Like this was our quote unquote break. We helped move rocks um, to, you know, in, I, I don't even remember what they were doing. I just remember lifting for the break in our hike. I just remember lifting heavy rocks to help these volunteers out just because we saw them out there and we we're like, you know what? Let's stop and help out for a little bit. So, oh, cool. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I have some very specific, I'm going to be completely selfish here. I have some very specific <laughs> questions for me, for me alone. I don't know how many of our listeners will be interested. Um, but I kind of want to know. So the last time, one of my favorite trails, by the way, is Breakneck. Um, and I was out on Breakneck with a couple of friends in October and noticed a lot of activity. I know that you guys are diverting part of the trail to get, um, to reduce some of the scrambles, to reduce, um, some of the slides on breakneck. Uh, I know that you are also building some steps and some drainage, but one of the things that I noticed, and I'm wondering if you could speak to it, is um, counting. So there, as we were at the trailhead, there were volunteers with clickers, and I know that the trend has been moving towards reservation systems. So I'm wondering specifically are there plans for more reservation systems in the new york new jersey trail conference and what exactly is going on with breakneck well um breakneck is a multi-year project and actually what the goal there's a couple of goals one of them is to create a trail from the train station in beacon okay so that people don't have to drive and park there 
Right. Parking is probably the limiting factor for us. And you've been up to the Adirondacks. You know how crazy that gets yes. up there on a, on, a, on, a, on a beautiful fall weekend. So part of the project is to make it easier for people to take the train and then walk uh, to the trail. But there's also work going on on the trail, not necessarily to move it off the scrambles, because that's what it is, but to maybe repair some of the sections. Okay. And make them more durable and more sustainable and less at risk from, you know, water and runoff and things like that. Okay. So I, I don't know that there's any plans. I've not heard anything about plans uh, for permits there. I think permits are, uh, there are definitely permits in places now in New York, parking yes. permits mostly, like uh, Sam's Point and yep. Minnewaska. And there's some new plans in uh, Peekamoose uh, Valley to uh, create a, consolidated 80 car parking lot there instead of having people park sort of here there and elsewhere oh wow so um so that would be um and there's already a permit system for the peekamoos blue hole and that those parking spots so you know the state's i think trying to put in place the infrastructure to allow larger numbers of people to 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 get out into nature which is a huge positive in my view by the way out on the john muir trail as you probably know that's a permit i've yes. never been able to get even as a single hiker i've never been able to get a straight through uh, jmt permit because there's a lottery and it's extremely popular and getting up whitney now is a lottery that's also very difficult um and even the other trailheads in the high sierra they disappear pretty they're first come first serve and they don't last long they're gone within seconds or minutes yeah i don't know uh, so it's a challenge um uh a hundred percent. I don't know if you listened to our episodes from the summer in your research, but we did a Western trip. We did the a little bit of the Grand Canyon. We, oh, cool. Yeah, we did uh, Mount Wheeler. Um, and then we did part of the John Muir Trail. And I was listening to you on another podcast, and we did the same thing that you did. The way we got our permit was we went into the middle. So you don't you don't try to go on the ends cuz those per they're gone. But if you um don't mind a little bit of a hike to get to the trail itself, you can get a permit. Not easy, but you have a better chance if you shoot yep. for somewhere in the middle. So yep, it's Oh my god, it's such a huge logistical operation to go out there because you know, you and particularly if you're not familiar with the system, I remember I got a permit for Red's Meadow North, and then I got a call from somebody. He's like, your itinerary has you going south. And I'm like, well, what difference? I got the permit. He's like, no, that doesn't work. So I had a scramble with, you know, airline and hotel and everything else was set, and I was able to find a different permit. But uh, what a headache. I mean, but the... I don't think we're close to that level of congestion, but, you know, here, here's the other uh, alternative, too. In, in the Catskills, you know, the high peaks will get crowded, but there's so many miles of trail, like in the western Catskills, very few people out there. Lovely yes. trails through the forest. There may not be a tall mountain, but eventually you realize, hey, I, I can enjoy these trails, too, or you can wander through the woods and you don't need a trail as long as you can find a place to park. <laughs> Our strategy is because we're about five hours away from the Adirondacks, about three and a half hours from the Catskills. So um, in Shawnagong, you're you're a bit closer, but our strategy is leave the night before, find a cheap. By the time I do my ADK forty six, I will have stayed in every rat hole motel in and around that area. Yeah. Um, I should start a hotel grid and then just yep. <laughs> wake up really early in the morning and start walking at like three in the morning. Parking is wide open. So that's our strategy for yep. that. Now, yeah, that sounds smart. Yeah, I, I did the, the 46 a few years ago, but the five hour drive to get there. I remember I had one trip up there. I drove five hours, stayed in a ratty motel, got to the trailhead. It was pouring rain. I did one peak and just felt so miserable. I gave up and went home. That was a, <laughs> a very unproductive weekend. Um, yeah. But, we've, we've uh, had a weekend like that or two up there. Yeah. Um, yeah. my 
favorite was in November. Um, oh, man, I am blanking. I cannot. I'm really, really embarrassed. I'm going to have to ask you, what is the second highest peak in the Adirondacks? Oh, don't ask me anything about the Adirondacks. Wouldn't that be Algonquin? Yes, thank you. I cannot. Okay, you asked me the one question I could possibly answer. <laughs> I cannot the believe I was drawing a blank on that. It took me 420 peaks just to remember the names. <laughs> <laughs> um, we were up there on uh, November 11th, so uh, uh -huh. Veterans Day, and it was 56 mile an hour winds, and it was oh, it was fantastic. It was like being inside of a hurricane. Again, do not do this, um, but just having that experience was great, and we were supposed to do a lot more of that range and we did two and we were like okay done so yeah yeah that you know you know you it's key to make good judgments i've yes. had plenty of trips where just not feeling up to it and, and you know cut it short and live to come back another day but you know, november is a great month because you, you know in the catskills too columbus day weekend is going to be thronged but the great thing about weather apps whenever a little cloud shows up on the weather app people get nervous and they don't go hit the trails. So they'll start to empty out. And then November, you generally can do whatever you want. Yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, do you want to mention anything else about the conference uh, before we move on? Well, um, the only thing I'd mention about the trail conference is if people are interested in giving back and want to volunteer, you can go straight to the website and there's always a need for people. Typically, a volunteer maintainer will adopt like a mile of trail. Okay. And they might go out two or three times a year. So it's not a huge commitment. There are also crews that you can join where people work together. And sometimes that's more fun. Um, so there's all sorts of ways to get involved. And, um, uh, you know, the volunteers are our superheroes. So if you want to be a superhero, here's one way to do that. Fantastic. Is it... Um, I'm fairly familiar with the volunteer structure of the Appalachian Trail. So I'll use that as a reference point and then you can tell me where you guys are similar or where you are different in your organization. So is I know on the AT you have the Conservancy is the overall um, the body that is, is overall responsible and the board and then underneath that you have trail clubs and then those trail clubs are responsible for however many miles of trail and getting volunteers. Is that a similar structure or are you guys organized a little bit different? We're a little bit different because the trail conference doesn't really own any particular land. Uh, okay. I think the conservancy has sort of general responsibility for the AT. So we work with uh, the DEC, the Department of Environmental Conservation, and DEP in New Jersey, and you know states, state park, um, and private landowners uh, too. Uh, so um, we have to organize volunteers to work in different jurisdictions, if you will. We have hiking clubs who are members in some places, like um, the ADK, ADK Club or the Catskills Thirty Five Hundred Club will coordinate with us but in many cases you can just become a volunteer straight with the trail conference and say hey you know this is where i live what kind of parks or preserves are nearby where there's a vacancy and you need some help so we can sort of put people to work almost anywhere you know in the lower hudson valley of new york and also new jersey all right excellent so go out and volunteer um or yes, please. do you guys accept donations and how does that work oh for sure Okay. For sure. Yep. So if I'm lazy and just want to give money, how do I do that? Go to nynjtc.org, and there will be a big donate button. By the way, here's an example, too. I should get you the link. Uh, but something that's exciting that's coming up, uh, 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 a young lady named Kim Lewinsky is going to go out and run the entire long path. Awesome. Can you... And she's... She's a great friend and supporter of the trail conference, so she's also raising money for the trail conference. So I can send you a URL, and you can click on that. And if somebody would like to donate, and if they like trail running or if they like uh, female athletics and female records, um, those are two great reasons to support Kim, and that money will go to the trail conference and be put to work, just trail maintenance, trail building, and the other things we do. Perfect. So two questions to kind of branch off of that. 
Um, for those of you that don't know, can you, for those listeners that don't know, um, what specifically is the Long Path? So the Long Path is a long distance trail. Uh, it starts in, actually in New York City, uh, and it ends outside of Albany. It's 358 yes. miles long, and it goes through the most beautiful parts of the Hudson Valley. So it goes through Harriman, it goes through the Schwangungs, it goes through the Catskills, and then into the Capital District. People sometimes confuse it with the Long Trail in Vermont, but this is the Long Path, and, and the name was inspired by Walt Whitman's Song of the Open Road. So he wrote about the Long Brown Path, <laughs> the Long Brown, brown Path leading me wherever I choose. They dropped the brown because at first they used brown paint as blazes, but you couldn't see it on the mark, yeah. so <laughs> they just dropped the brown. Now it's called the Long Path, but it's a great it's a great experience. I ran it in twenty thirteen. Okay, and uh, and I, I broke the record, and then since since that time, two groups have come out and broken the record, males, and so Kim is going to be the first female to set a record. Um, but it's a wonderful long-distance trail because it takes you through such gorgeous areas, and it's so different. Um, it's so quintessential New York because it starts in the city. It's got some sections that sneak between sort of congested urban areas, and then it takes you out into the wilds, um, you know, like the Schoharie Valley, which, you know, is three and a half hours from New York City, and not that many people get out to that. It's pretty remote. So it's just a fabulous experience, and there's so much history tied into the long path. When you do something like this, you're going to start to hear the voices of John Burroughs or, you know, Thoreau or Emerson or Walt Whitman. There's so much to learn about the history of the state and the history of just our connection with the natural environment. Fantastic. And can you repeat her name again one more time? Yeah, it's Kim Lewinsky. Awesome. So I will put that in our show notes. Um, you know, I'll send you an email with the URL so that you can go straight to great. what she's doing. Perfect. So um, the long path, there is a photography exhibit um, related to that in June. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So um, uh, there's a fellow named Steve Aaron, who's a fantastic landscape photographer, and he's got a huge following, particularly on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, he grew up in the backyard of the Schwan Gunks and just knows the Gunks and the Catskills really, really well and takes beautiful pictures. So he's collected um, about 30 framed images that he's taken of various points along the long path. So there's, a, for example, a great view from the top of Scunamunk where you can see the Schwangungs laid out and then behind them the Catskills with the Devil's Path. Um, and uh, we're, we're uh, showing this exhibit exhibition in the Howland Cultural Center in Beacon, New York uh, during June and into early July. July 9th, if you're going to be in Beacon, Steve and I will give a little talk just about our experiences on the long path. Um, and that's it. But the purpose of the exhibition is just to make more people aware of this trail, make more people aware of the trail conference. Trail conference volunteers created the Long Path. And it's a total labor of love because it's not like the state you know, came and said, here's a million dollars, create a Long Path. No, it was acquired parcel by parcel over decades. And sometimes these are parcels of like three acres that move, you know, 100 feet of trail off the road and into the forest. Um, so that's the purpose of it, just to help more people understand about this tremendous recreational asset, if you want to call it that, right in our backyard, um, and more, and help people understand about the trail conference as well. Awesome. Um, so if any of our listeners want a great experience, I highly recommend this summer head out to Beacon, maybe do Breakneck, which is one of my favorite trails, and then go to the photography exposition. You'll have a great weekend. For sure. Absolutely. And then what's the fire tower on top of um, Breakneck? Because Tumbles and I have done it from both sides, and I can never remember the other side. So um, I'm not a Beacon person, so I may screw this up, but I think if you go to Beacon, there's a little park with some aluminum stairs and then a very rocky, steep trail. Because yes. I ran a race. There's a 10-mile race yep. that starts down by the river and goes up to 
uh, the fire tower. So the fire tower is a little ways past the, um, there's some brick uh, ruins up there. Yeah, it's a, the remnants so I think of it's a down the north end uh, of the trail. Yeah. Yeah, it's the remnants of um, a ski slope, I believe. Uh, yes, yeah. Very, all right, very cool. And then the other side is breakneck. So um, right. it's, a, it's one of, if not my favorite trail in the conference. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's one of the most popular trails, I think, in the country. It's certainly yeah. a huge draw in New York. Yeah, because isn't it technically, isn't... Um, at least the breakneck end, isn't that technically still part of New York City uh, because of the train? That I do not know. Okay. I may be mistaken there, but um, that's what I had. New York City, you'll see New York City police cars up in the Catskills, and they're patrolling um, the uh, reservoirs and the water yeah. system. So New York City definitely owns property that uh, safeguards the water supply for the city. Speaking, but I don't know about breakneck. Okay, speaking of um, one of the most disappointing um, experiences in the Catskills, and I am so bad tonight. I'm like embarrassing myself. Um, but where New York City gets its water, as you mentioned, starts in the Catskills, and we were on a peak, literally where the aqueduct starts. And um, it was absolutely disgusting because just seeing volunteers having to pick up dumpster loads of garbage oh, yeah. from people just going up there and treating it like a poorly run swimming pool. I'm like, you're polluting your own water. Like, it, it was that, disheartening. That sounds like the blue hole. And, and look, there's, there's always conflicts. And, there, you know, there's... People who may come up from the city, and they're used to an environment where there's trash everywhere. I lived in yep. the city for a number of years. There's always trash on the ground everywhere. It's sad, and it's, um, but it's it's an unfortunate reality. And they may come up to the Catskills and assume that there are people there to clean up, and not realize that it's different. So, what's needed is. Um, you know, tolerance to understand that people are coming from different places. Most people are not bad apples. They So there's a need for education and communication. You've seen the trail conference stewards in a, in a, in a couple of locations, like Breakneck, and we have some in the Catskills, too. And so their job is to educate people about leave no trace behind. You know, don't assume somebody's there to pick up your garbage and bring water with you. And, you know, they, they'll come the basics. You know, on, on proper footwear, et cetera. So education is really, you know, really important for all of us, you know, in order to manage growth, growth of more people trying to access the outdoors. And, and look, everybody's responding to the call of the mountains just in, you know, in different ways. All right. Fair enough. But, but you know, you, I'm sure you do this and I do this and other people do this is, um, you know, you're walking down the trail. By the way, the trails in the Catskills generally, in my experience, are pretty uh, clean, but I have over the years. I pick up things, and sometimes I'm going slowly, and I'll see the little corners. Like, so I won't usually carry food on a day hike. Certainly not on a day hike. So I'm walking along, and I see the little corners where people yep. tore off a yep. corner of their power bar or whatever. So I pick those up. I once I found some shorts with American flag; <laughs> they just gotten left behind, or, or the the little uh, chemical packs for warming your gloves. Yes. So I pick those up and. And you just pick up the small things. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure I have accidentally dropped something. And so we all just see something, we pick it up, and we all contribute. The community contributes to it being a better environment. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, Tumbles has an entire wardrobe, I think, of stuff that she's picked up from people that have le left things yep, yep. behind. And I will agree with you generally um leave no trace has been extremely successful some people take it to where it's like a virtue signal thing you see all the tiktok <laughs> videos you see the instagram yeah. reels look what i i picked this up because i'm leave note and it's a shaming element but oh yeah but generally it has been an extremely successful movement and the trails primarily are in really good condition because yeah. of it yeah um so i'll tell you you'll appreciate this story so i was going up um bear pen okay and like i said i've done 
204 uh, barefoot hikes. So I was going barefoot. When you go barefoot, you watch where you step, right, for a lot of obvious reasons. And I saw something sparkle. So I reached down and picked it up. It was a leave no trace behind master educator lapel pin. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I went to their website and I said, please let me know if you lost this and I'll send it to you. And, but nobody took my bait. <laughs> that that is hilarious. That sounds because I've I have uh, my pack has lots of pins on it, and occasionally oh. they fall off as you're opening flaps. So that sounds like that. But that is that's a a nice ironic tale. Um, I was gonna say something else, and I am blanking. So we will just move on. If it comes to me, I will circle back. So. As if you have not done enough, as if we've not talked about enough of your accomplishments, uh, you are also an author. Tell us about um, your books. Is there one coming out? What's going on with that? So the books are harder than the running and hiking. So I have one book out uh, from a few years back on my long path to run, and you can get it on Amazon. It's called Running the Long Path, uh, a journey of self-discovery in New York's Hudson Valley. And it's just about training and then getting on the trail and the ups and downs and then more downs. Um, But I try to weave in, as I was saying, what I learned about Walt Whitman, John Burroughs, and other uh, other, uh, people as well, like Joseph Brandt, who was the war chief of the Mohawks, and they had battles in the Schoharie Valley uh, back in the day. So I tried to combine what I learned by through this experience with my own adventure, I've got two books I'm working on, one about the Catskills grid, one about the barefoot through hike of the John Muir Trail. Um, but, you know, it's not easy in, a, you know, in today's world. Uh, so those have been ongoing projects. And, uh, but I'm looking forward to getting them out and sharing them. And, you know, hopefully somebody will read those stories and decide to go out there and do something, you know, cool on their own self-published or do you have a publisher well the uh, the um the long path book was published by suny press okay and the the two new ones are looking for publishers as we speak <laughs> excellent so if, if one of your listeners is a publisher please contact me immediately <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here folks and uh, we that is a perfect segue to wrap us up how uh-huh. do people contact you so Give all of your plugs. You can plug your own Instagram, your website I know you have, a media page I know you have, the trail conference stuff. Go ahead. Plug away. So let's start with the trail conference because that's the most important. And I'll just repeat the uh, website, nynjtc.org. Okay. Um, and you can donate. You can volunteer. You can just learn more about the trail conference. For myself, I've got a website called, uh, which is just barefootken.com. And there's a contact me form. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm Long Brown Path. Yes, you are. And that's it. All right. I can give you my phone number too, but I don't don't think that's wise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you very, very much, Ken. Um, We would love to have you back on. We'll arrange that at some point. Uh, But I think that is a great place for us to stop today. Uh, please go to the Trail Conference website, become a volunteer, donate, do what you can do, even if that's just practicing Leave No Trace as you are going on your hikes. Alrighty, thank you very much, sir. I'll leave you with the last word. Uh, Cranky, thank you so much. I'm just delighted to participate in your podcast, and my only last word is to say thank you and give my regards to Tumbles. You are very welcome. Thank you so much. And I'm going to hit stop, but if you could stay for a moment, I would appreciate it.